Welcome to the library, dear listener. Please, take a seat. I have a story for you. But before we start, I have some news. Until October 10th, we're offering our exclusive halloween theme stickers to patrons at the $5 level. I adore these designs, and I hope you will too. As a token of our appreciation, you'll receive these along with our sincere gratitude. Your support means the world to us, especially as a small production like ours. With that said, settle in. This is The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 7. The Episode of the Barrel The police had brought a cab with them, and in this I escorted Miss Morrison back to her home. In the fashion of women, she had borne the trouble with a calm face as long as there was someone else to support, and I had found her bright and placid by the side of the frightened housekeeper. In the cab, however, she turned faint and then burst into a passion of weeping, so sorely she had been tried by the adventures of the night. She has told me since that she thought me cold and distant upon that journey. She never guessed the struggle within my breast, or the effort of self-restraint which held me back. My sympathies and my love went out to her, even as my hand had in the garden. I felt that years of conventionalities of life could not teach me to know her sweet, brave nature as this one day of strange experiences. Yet, there were two thoughts which sealed the words of affection upon my lips. She was helpless, shaken in mind and nerve. It wouldn't be right to confess my love upon her at such times. Worse still, she was rich. If Holmes' research were successful, she would be an heiress. Was it fair? Was it honorable that a half-pay surgeon should take such advantage of an intimacy which chance had brought about. Might she not look upon me as a mere vulgar fortune-seeker? I could not bear to risk such a thought crosses her mind. This agra-treasure intervened like an impassable barrier between us. It was nearly two o'clock when we reached Mrs. Cecil Forrester's. The servants had retired hours ago, but Mrs. Forrester had been so interested in the strange message which Miss Morstan had received that she had sat up in hope of her return. She opened the door herself, a middle-aged, graceful woman, and it gave me joy to see how tenderly her arms stole around the other's waist and how motherly was the voice in which she greeted her. She was clearly no mere paid dependent, but an honored friend. I was introduced and Mrs. Forrester earnestly begged me to step in and tell her our adventures. I explained, however, the importance of my errand, and promised faithfully to call and report any progress which we might make with the case. As we drove away, I stole a glance back, and I still seemed to see that little group on the step. Two graceful, clinging figures, the half-open door, the hall light shining through the stained glass, the barometer and the bright stair-rods. It was soothing to catch even that passing glimpse of tranquil English home in the midst of the wild, dark business which had absorbed us. And the more I thought of what happened, the wilder and darker it grew. I reviewed the whole extraordinary sequence of events as I rattled on through the silent, gas-lit streets. There was the original problem, 
That, at least, was pretty clear now. The death of Captain Morstan. The sending of the pearls. The advertisement. The letter. We had had light upon all of these events. They'd only led us, however, to a deeper and more tragic mystery. The Indian treasure. The curious plan found amongst Morstan's luggage. The strange scene at Major Sholto's death. The rediscovery of the treasure immediately followed by the murder of the discoverer, the very singular accomplishments to the crime, the footsteps, the remarkable weapons, the words put upon the card, corresponding with those upon Captain Morrison's chart. Here was indeed a labyrinth in which a man less singularly endowed than my fellow lodger might well despair of ever finding a clue. Pynchon Lane was a row of shabby, two-storied brick houses in the lower quarter of Lambeth. At number three... you drunken vagabond. If you kick up any more row, I'll open up the kennels and let out 43 dogs upon you. If you let one out, it's just what I've come for. Go on. So help me gracious, I have a wipe in my bag, and I'll drop it on your head if you don't hook it. But I want a dog. I won't be argued with. Now stand clear, for when I say three, down goes the wiper. Oh, but Mr. Sherlock Holmes. A friend of Mr. Sherlock is always welcome. Step in, sir. Keep clear of the badger when he bites. Ah, naughty, naughty. Would you take a nip at the gentleman? Don't mind that, sir. It's only a slow worm. It ain't got no fangs, so it gives it the run of the room for it keeps the beetles down. You must not mind me being just a little short with you at first. I'm guided at by the children, and there's many a one just comes down this lane to knock me up. What was it that Mr. Sherlock Holmes wanted, sir? He wanted a dog of yours. Ah, that would be Toby. Yes, Toby was the name. Toby lives on number seven on the left here. Sugar? Okay. Here, boy.
You there, stop. What business have you here? I'm with Mr. Sherlock Holmes. He will confirm for me, if you would like to ask him. Ah, you have him there. Good dog, then. Athelney Jones is gone. We have had an immense display of energy since you left. He has arrested not only friend Thaddeus, but Mr. McMurdo, the housekeeper, and the Indian servant. We have the place to ourselves, but for a sergeant upstairs. Leave the dog here and come up. We tied Toby to the hall table and reascended the stairs. The room was as he had left it, save that a sheet had been draped over the central figure. A weary-looking police sergeant reclined in the corner. Lend me your bullseye, sergeant. Now tie this bit of card around my neck so as to hang it in front of me. Thank you. Now I must kick off my boots and stockings. Just you carry them down with you, Watson. I'm going to do a little climbing and dip my handkerchief in the creosote. That'll do. Now come up into the garret with me for a moment. We clambered up through the hole. Holmes turned his light once more upon the footsteps in the dust. I wish you particularly to notice these footmarks. Do you observe anything noteworthy about them? They belong to a child or a small woman. Apart from their size, though, is there nothing else? They appear to be much as other footmarks. Not at all. Look here. This is the print of a right foot in the dust. Now I make one with my naked foot beside it. What is the chief difference? Well, your toes are all cramped together. The other print has each toe distinctly divided. Quite so. That is the point. Bear that in mind. Now, would you kindly step over to that flap window and smell the edge of the woodwork? I shall stay here as I have this handkerchief in my hand. It smells of tar. That is where he put his foot in getting out. If you can trace him, I should think that Toby will have no difficulty. Now run downstairs, loose the dog, and look out for Blondin. Killed someday. By the time I got out into the grounds, Sherlock Holmes was on the roof, and I could see him like an enormous glowworm crawling very slowly around the edge. I lost sight of him behind a stack of chimneys, but he presently reappeared and vanished once more upon the opposite side. When I made my way around there, I found him seated at one of the corner eaves. Is that you, Watson? Yes. Are you swinging your legs? Yes, important information. Anyway, this is the place. What is that black thing down there? A water barrel. Top on it? Yes. 
No sign of a ladder? No. Confound the fellow. It is a most breakneck place. I ought to be able to come down from where he could climb up. The water pipe feels pretty firm. Here goes, anyhow. It was easy to follow him. Tiles were loosened the whole way along, and in his hurry, he had dropped this grass pouch with the remaining thorns. It confirms my diagnosis, as you doctors express it. The object which he held up to me was a small pocket or pouch, woven out of colored grasses, and with a few beads strung around it. In shape and size, it was not unlike a cigarette case. Inside were half a dozen spines of dark wood, sharp at one end and rounded at the other, like the one which had struck Bartholomew Sholto. They are hellish things. Look out that you don't prick yourself. I'm delighted to have them, for the chances are that they are all he has. There is the less fear of you or me finding one in our skin before long. I would sooner face a martini bullet myself. Are you game for a six-mile trudge, Watson? Certainly. Your leg will stand for it? Oh, yes. Here you are, doggy. Good old Toby. Smell it, Toby. Smell it. He pushed the creosote handkerchief under the dog's nose, while the creature stood with its fluffy legs separated, and with a most comical cock to its head, like a connoisseur sniffing the bouquet of a famous vintage. Holmes then threw the handkerchief to a distance, fastened a stout cord to the dog's collar, and led him to the foot of the water barrel. The creature instantly broke into a succession of high, tremulous yelps, and with his nose on the ground and his tail in the air, pattered off upon the trail at a pace which strained his leash and kept us at the top of our speed. The east had been gradually whitening, and we could now see some distance in the cold gray light. The square, massive house, with its black, empty windows and high, bare walls, towered up, sad and forlorn behind us. Our course led right across the grounds, in and out amongst the trenches and pits, with which they were scarred and intersected. The whole place, with its scattered dirt heaps and ill-grown shrubs, had a blighted, ill-omened look which harmonized with the black tragedy which hung over it. On reaching the boundary wall, Toby ran along, whining eagerly, under its shadow, and stopped finally in a corner screened by a young beech. Where the two walls joined, several bricks had been loosened, and the crevices left were worn down and rounded upon the lower side, as though they had frequently been used as a ladder. Holmes clambered up, and, taking the dog from me, he dropped it over upon the other side. There's the print of the wooden leg's hand there on the wall. You see the slight smudge of blood upon the white plaster? What a lucky thing it is that we have had no very heavy rain since yesterday. The scent will lie upon the road in spite of their eight and twenty hours start. I confess that I had my doubts myself when I reflected upon the great traffic which had passed along the London road in the interval. My fears were soon appeased, however, 
Toby never hesitated or swerved, but waddled on in his peculiar rolling fashion. Clearly, the pungent smell of the creosote rose high above all the other contending scents. Do not imagine that I depend for my success in this case upon the mere chance of one of these fellows having put his foot in the chemical. I have knowledge now which would enable me to trace them in many different ways. This, however, is the readiest, and since fortune has put it into our hands, I should be culpable if I neglected it. It has, however, prevented the case from becoming the pretty little intellectual problem which it at one time promised to be. There might have been some credit to be gained out of it, but for this too palpable clue. There is credit, and to spare. I assure you, Holmes, that I marvel at the means by which you obtain your results in this case, even more than I did in the Jefferson Hope murder. The thing seems to me to be deeper and more inexplicable. How, for example, could you describe with such confidence the wooden-legged man? Cha, my dear boy, it was simplicity itself. I don't wish to be theatrical. It is all patent and above board. Two officers who are in command of a convict guard learn an important secret as to buried treasure. A map is drawn for them by an Englishman named Jonathan Small. You remember that we saw the name upon the chart in Captain Morstan's possession. He had signed it in behalf of himself and his associates, the Sign of the Four, as they somewhat dramatically called it. Aided by this chart, the officers, or one of them, gets the treasure and brings it to England, leaving, we will suppose, some condition under which he received it unfulfilled. Now then, why did not Jonathan Small get the treasure himself? The answer is obvious. The chart is dated at a time when Morstan was brought into close association with convicts. Jonathan Small did not get the treasure because he and his associates were themselves convicts and could not get away. But that is mere speculation. It is more than that. It is the only hypothesis which covers the facts. Let us see how it fits in with the sequel. Major Sholto remains at peace for some years, happy in the possession of his treasure. Then he receives a letter from India which gives him a great fright. What was that? A letter to say that the men whom he had wronged had been set free. Or had escaped. That is much more likely or he would have known what their term of imprisonment was. It would not have been a surprise to him. What does he do, then? He guards himself against a wooden-legged man, a white man, mark you, for he mistakes a white tradesman for him and actually fires a pistol at him. Now, only one white man's name is on the chart. The others are Hindus or Mohammedans. There is no other white man. Therefore, we may say with confidence that the wooden-legged man is identical with Jonathan Small. Does the reasoning strike you as being faulty? No. It is clear and concise. Well, now, let us put ourselves in the place of Jonathan Small. Let us look at it from his point of view. He comes to England with the double idea of regaining what he would consider to be his rights and of having his revenge upon the man who had wronged him. He found out where Sholto lived, and very possibly he established communications with someone inside the house. There is this butler, Lal Rao, whom we have not seen. Mrs. Burnstone gives him far from a good character. Small could not find out, however, where the treasure was hid, for no one ever knew save the Major and one faithful servant who had died. 
Suddenly, Small learns that the Major is on his deathbed. In a frenzy, lest the secret of the treasure die with him, he runs the gauntlet over the guards, makes his way to the dying man's window, and is only deterred from entering by the presence of his two sons. In a frenzy, lest the secret of the treasure die with him, he runs the gauntlet of the guards, makes his way to the dying man's window, and is only deterred from entering by the presence of his two sons. Mad with hate, however, against the dead man, he enters the room that night, searches his private papers in the hope of discovering some memorandum relating to the treasure, and finally leaves a memento of his visit in the short inscription upon the card. He had doubtless planned beforehand that should he slay the major, he would leave some such record upon the body as a sign that it was not a common murder, but, from the point of view of the four associates, something in the nature of an act of justice. Whimsical and bizarre conceits of this kind are common enough in the annals of crime, and usually afford valuable indications as to the criminal. Do you follow all this? Very clearly. Now, what could Jonathan Small do? He could only continue to keep a secret watch upon the efforts made to find the treasure. Possibly, he leaves England and only comes back at intervals. Then comes the discovery of the garret, and he is instantly informed of it. We again trace the presence of some confederate in the household. Jonathan, with his wooden leg, is utterly unable to reach the lofty room of Bartholomew Sholto. He takes with him, however, a rather curious associate who gets over this difficulty, but dips his naked foot into creosote. Whence comes Toby, and a six-mile limp for a half-pay officer with a damaged tendo Achilles. But it was the associate, and not Jonathan, who committed the crime. Quite so. And rather to Jonathan's disgust, to judge by the way he stamped about when he got into the room. He bore no judge against Bartholomew Sholto, and would have preferred if he could have been simply bound and gagged. He did not wish to put his head in a halter. There was no help for it, however. The savage instincts of his companion had broken out, and the poison had done its work. So Jonathan Small left his record, lowered the treasure box to the ground, and followed it himself. That was the train of events as far as I can decipher them. Of course, as to his personal appearance, he must be middle-aged, and must be sunburned after serving his time in such an oven as the Andaman's. His height is readily calculated from the length of his stride, and we know that he was bearded. His hairiness was the point of which impressed itself upon Thaddeus Sholto when he saw him at the window. I don't know that there is anything else. The associate? Ah, well, there's no great mystery in that, but you will know all about it soon enough. How sweet the morning air is! See how that one little cloud floats like a pink feather from some gigantic flamingo? Now the red rim of the sun pushes itself over the London cloud bank. It shines on a good many folk, but on none, I dare bet, who are on a stranger errand than you and I. How small we feel with our petty ambitions and strivings in the presence of the great elemental forces of nature. Are you well up in your Jean-Paul? Fairly so. I worked back to him through Carlisle. That was like following the brook to the parent lake. He makes one curious but profound remark. It is that the chief proof of a man's real greatness lies in his perception of his own smallness. It argues, you see, 
a power of comparison and of appreciation which is in itself a proof of nobility. There is much food for thought in Richter. You have not a pistol, have you? I have my stick. It is just possible that we may need something of the sort if we get to their lair. Jonathan, I shall leave to you. But if the other turns nasty, I shall shoot him dead. We had, during this time, been following the guidance of Toby, down the half-rural villa-lined roads which lead to the metropolis. Now, however, we were beginning to come among continuous streets, where laborers and dockmen were already up, and women were taking down shutters and brushing doorsteps. At the square-topped corner public houses, business was just beginning, and rough-looking men were emerging, rubbing their sleeves across their beards after their morning wet. Strange dogs sauntered up and stared wonderingly at us as we passed, but our Toby looked neither to the right nor the left, but trotted onwards with his nose to the ground and an occasional eager whine which spoke of a hot scent. We had traversed Streatham, Brixton, Camberwell, and now found ourselves in Kennington Lane, having borne away through the side streets to the east of the Oval. The men whom we pursued seemed to have taken a curiously zigzagging road, with the idea, probably, of escaping observation. They had never kept to the main road if a parallel side street would serve their turn. At the foot of Kennington Lane, they had all edged away to the left through Bond Street and Miles Street, where the latter street turns into Knight's Place. Toby ceased to advance, but began to run backwards and forwards with one ear cocked and the other drooping the very picture of canine indecision. Then he waddled round in circles, looking up to us from time to time, as if to ask for sympathy in his embarrassment. What a curious trail. Surely the main roads are far more of a direct route. What good is a crime when you're detected so soon? What the deuce is the matter with the dog? They surely would not take a cab or go off in a balloon. Perhaps they stood here for some time. Ah, it's all right. He's off again. He was indeed off, for after sniffing round again, he suddenly made up his mind and darted away with the energy and determination such as he had not yet shown. The scent appeared to be much hotter than before for he had not even to put his nose to the ground, but tugged at his leash and tried to break into a run. I could see by the gleam in Holmes's eyes that he thought we were nearing the end of our journey. Our course now ran down Nine Elms until we came to Broderick and Nelson's large timber yard, just past the White Eagle Tavern. Here, the dog, frantic with excitement, turned down through the side gate into the enclosure, where the Sawyers were already at work. On the dog raced through sawdust and shavings, down an alley, round a passage, between two wood piles, and finally, with a triumphant yelp, sprang upon a large barrel which stood upon a hand trolley on which it had been brought. With lolling tongue and blinking eyes, Toby stood upon the cask, looking from one to the other of us for some sign of appreciation. 
The staves of the barrel and the wheels of the trolley were smeared with a dark liquid, and the whole air was heavy with the smell of creosote. Sherlock Holmes and I looked blankly at each other, and then... (laughs) (laughs) How ironic it is. And that is all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like, the Tea Room is open for you on Patreon. You'll get each episode early and ad-free. And until October 10th, stickers. Today's episode featured the talents of Joshua as Sherlock, Paul as Watson, Wendell as Mr. Sherman, and me, Willow, as your narrator. All links will be in the description. Until next week, take care, and we'll see you soon. The story you are about to hear is untrue. Mr. Wells, this is Mr. George Orwell. He's a... Dreadful, big-footed, Trotskyist hack. The rivalry between two of speculative fiction's greatest writers. Mr. Orwell, this is H.G. Wells, who's... An archaic pacifist utopian dinosaur. The story of a wholly remarkable book. 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April. Winston Smith adjusted his aviator sunglasses. Chilling, isn't it? As he drove his converter past the bowling alley. A society driven by conspicuous consumerism and ridiculous clothing fads. Time travel. Wells, are you telling me that you, popular novelist and former upholsterer's apprentice, have constructed a genuine working time machine out of a bicycle? I will travel into the future. We're in a totalitarian dictatorship. Free thought is outlawed and nobody in the world can make a decent brew. An astonishing... What on earth happened? The book warned people. If we went down the road of capitalism, by the 1980s, we'd have a society built of vain, selfish people. Everyone was so afraid of that that they went to the other extreme. Really? Stop. You are under arrest for crimes against the state. If you have not committed any crimes, they will be committed retrospectively on your behalf. An entirely untrue story of tea. There are 11 rules to making a nice cup of tea, and they are all golden. Bicycles? My invention. I'm sorry to break it to you, Wells, but the bicycle has already been invented. And meddling with causality. We've made the future even worse. Did a large iron lung materialise in the room? The Adventures of George Orwell and H.G. Wells. Tea, Big Brother? Season 1 of Untrue Stories. A comedy drama, science fiction, serial podcast from award-winning writer Robin Johnson. Indian tea, china teapot warmed on the hob, five spoons to the litre, unstrained, poured whilst boiling, shaken, not stirred, cylindrical cup, semi-skimmed milk, tea in first, no sugar.